Welcome to Episode 1 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 1, Calum's Cove, September 15, 2304. All happy families resemble each other. All unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Otto Krug sat on a bollard picking at the paint with a grubby nail and thinking how unhappy he was with his particular family. Otto! He looked up in time to see the cast line snaking through the pale green autumn sky. He slipped from his seat in the heavy metal plug and caught it deftly, lashing it over and under in a neat figure eight, almost without thinking. He turned to wave at the smiling fisherman on the bridge of the boat alongside and heard the rumbling of the engines as the skipper backed down against the line to snug his vessel in against the dock. In two ticks the heavy fishing boat was moored securely and an overhead crane began lifting heavy fish boxes out of the hold. Thanks, Otto. Red Green hopped lightly off the side of the boat and onto the dock. His face was caught in a perpetual grin and the wrinkles at the corners of his eyes had pale creases where the sun seldom reached even when burnishing his face with a mahogany glow. Otto smiled back in spite of himself. It was impossible not to smile back at Red, no matter what your father had done to you earlier in the day. You're most welcome, of course, Red, he replied, and any chance I can go out with you next trip? he asked hopefully. Red pushed his cap back and grinned even more while shaking his head. Now, laddie buck, you know, your daddy would skin my hide, he began with a chuckle. He lowered his voice and gave a fair approximation of Otto's father's intonation when he finished with, Shaman's son needs to tend to shaman's business. Otto grimaced. Bad enough from him all the time, he said. Red's face took on a sympathetic cast, and he reached out to ruffle the boy's hair. Aye, laddie, but he does have the right of it. Shaman's too valuable to be risking his skin out on old Briny here. He jerked a thumb over his shoulder at the harbor mouth. It's not that dangerous, Otto protested. He knew the argument was futile, especially since the Esmeralda had just been lost in August. Nobody had been killed, but Frank Knowles was still on crutches. Otto, Red said seriously, but still with a smile, you know better. Otto sighed the belly-deep sigh of frustrated youth and nodded resignedly. Yeah, he said, but I had to ask. Well, here, Red said as he reached back aboard and pulled a fish tray from the gunnels of the boat. Take this to your good mother and give her my regards. Be sure to thank your father for me. His guidance helped us find this batch, and it's the least I can do to repay him. Otto's eyes raked the tray of silvery shapes packed neatly in water ice. He smiled and took the tray from the larger man's hands, and, sighing once more, began to trudge along the quay to where the shaman's cottage nestled up against the headland. The seabirds creaked above his head, and the smell of the rockweed exposed by the falling tide tickled the inside of his nose with a kind of iodine and ammonia bite. The way was paved with native stone, cut and smoothed by the company crew decades before when the village was first established, so the walking was easy, but the flat tray of fish grew heavier as he walked. By the time he made it to the cottage, his funk had returned in full measure, and even the king's ransom of bellfish he carried home wasn't enough to cheer him up. Stupid fish, he muttered, always fish. He elbowed the kitchen door open and gratefully slipped the flat onto the counter beside the sink. Hey, hon, his mother said with a fond smile from where she sat, working on the planet net in the corner of the cozy kitchen. What you got? Red sent this over with his regards and thanks for father's guidance, the boy replied. His thirteen staniers weighed heavily on him at times, but the afternoon in his mother's kitchen helped somewhat. 
It's a tray of bellfish. Rachel Crew rose from the terminal and crossed to look down into the tray. Oh, very nice. We'll have some fresh for dinner, and I'll put the rest in the larder. Winter's coming, you know, she said with a smile. Otto stared at his mother for a long moment, wondering if she really knew how inane that sounded. Yes, mother, he said. I'd heard we'd be having winter this year. The news is all over the market. He laughed in spite of himself, and his mother chuckled with him. Don't be a bore, Otto, she said with a grin. You know what I mean. Yes, mother, I do, he agreed, not quite contritely. But why dwell on the obvious? She reached out and tweaked the tip of his nose playfully. Because, dear boy, when you get to be my age, you can't think of clever things to say like you do. Otto knew she was twitting him, but somehow it was okay. He sighed. But more bellfish. Rachel's face relaxed into a sympathetic smile. Well, it's a sign of respect. You know that, she said. Yes, but a nice bit of mutton would be a nice change, or a chicken. Otto's mouth was suddenly full of moisture at the thought of a nice lamb stew. There's not many sheep at sea, boy, his father spoke from the open doorway. His voice was stern, but his eyes held a twinkle. I know, father, Otto replied, not willing to give up on a good wine. But why fish all the time? Can't you help some of the shepherds once in a while? he asked plaintively. Richard Krug smiled at his boy and shook his head. We do what we can, Otto, you know that. And Otto did know. Thirteen Staniers was enough to see how the life of a south coast shaman was shaped by the land and the sea. The miracle was that the company let them stay. Perhaps it was because his mother worked on the planet net as a company employee, and perhaps it was because the company had a policy of not interfering with religious practice. While technically not an employee of the company, his father was a shaman, and the folk along the south coast took that title very seriously. Otto sighed again, and started to say something more, but his father cut him off, saying, Come, Otto, we need to continue your lessons, before turning and stepping out into the late afternoon light. You better scoot, Otto, his mother said gently. I'll have a nice grand apple pie for dessert tonight. Study well. Otto, for his part, trudged at the door a bit sullenly, and walked alongside the tall man who was the village shaman and tried to listen to the world. Rachel Krug smiled, a bit sadly perhaps, as her son and husband strolled around the corner and out of sight. Her hand went to a small carved figure on a narrow band of leather around her neck, and she said a little prayer, sending a mother's love along with a heartfelt wish that her son would find the shaman's gift. Releasing the figure, she sighed and returned to wrap up her net session before it was time to deal with grand apples and pies and a very large tray of bellfish. Ruefully, she admitted to herself that her sympathies lay with the boy. Bellfish might be the rarest delicacy to be plucked from the oceans of St. Cloud, but a bit of mutton would certainly be a welcome change of pace. Even a nice abo abo filet. Chapter 2. Calum's Cove, September 15, 2304. Richard Krug strode along, seemingly lost in his thoughts, as Otto slouched alongside. Otto would periodically look up at his father, but his father never looked back. Lessons were never Otto's favorite time of day, even when it involved walking along the beach. In a matter of moments, they'd crossed over the headland that separated the main harbor of Calum's Cove from the narrow native beach that the locals called Sandy Long. The vagarities of wind and wave had created this stretch of coast, stretching westward along the shore from Calum's Cove for about ten kilometers. It was neither straight nor deeply curved, but 
carried a delicate bow-shaped arch upon which the sea deposited a bounty of wood, shell, weed, and rack. Casual strollers from the village kept the near end picked clear of the more interesting bits, but Otto knew from long experience that they'd be seeing much more than the near end of this beach. The sea gleamed to the left as the sun was sliding down the sky in front of them. To the right, the hummocks of gorse rose high up the slope to the wind-scoured heath above. For hundreds of kilometers north, the land was a flat plate of low grasses, sedges, and brush. The main continental plateau was some fifty meters above sea level and varied not more than two meters in elevation across the entire plain until the Farnsworth Range rose suddenly to soar three thousand meters at the convergence of the north and south tectonic plates. That was several hundred kilometers north of where Otto and his father picked away along the beach and the relentless wind roamed unchecked across the face of the planet. Virtually all the fishermen lived in a narrow band of land along the edges of the sea where the centuries had worn a ledge in the plateau, providing a toehold that was out of the harsh, land-borne winds. Otto, his father spoke finally after some ticks of walking slowly along the beach, what do you feel? Otto dutifully tried to find something to say that would be proper and fitting for a shaman in training, but when he didn't answer right away, his father just grunted a short laugh and said, you feel sand. Otto grinned in the side of his mouth and nodded agreement. I'm sorry, father, but I feel sand. His father just looked down at him with a crooked grin of his own. It'll come, Otto. It will come. Otto sighed against his will and was immediately sorry, knowing his father would hear it and assume, quite rightly, that his heart just wasn't in the lesson. If he heard, his father didn't respond, but merely continued his stroll along the beach. Man and boy picking their way along the washed-up debris on the sand, father stooping to pick up small bits of shell and stone, the occasional weathered wood. Often he'd hold it up to the light and sometimes place the bit carefully in his pocket. Usually he'd just toss it aside. Otto merely watched and brooded. He kicked at the piles of sticks and scuffed his feet, leaving a snaking trail behind him in the sand. It was a well-established pattern, and it continued for nearly a stand before Otto sighed once more and said, Father... What are we doing here? Why, what do you mean, Otto? He asked back with a knowing grin. Otto waved his arms and raised his voice a bit against the sound of surf and wind. All of this. We come out here day after day. You pick up stuff. You toss most of it away. Ask me what I feel. What am I doing here? You call this my lesson, but what am I supposed to learn? In the end, he was practically shouting, but his father just nodded and pursed his lips and thought before continuing his meandering path down the beach. Recognizing the posture, Otto fell silent and followed along beside. Finally, the man squinted up at the sun and out at the sea before speaking. The title of shaman is passed from father to son. You've known that since you were old enough to hear the words. In part, it's because you need to be trained in the lore, and a shaman is the only one who can pass on that lore. But mostly, you need to be removed from the world, he said matter-of-factly. Otto almost stopped dead in his tracks. In the Staniers he'd been following his father up and down the beach, this was the first time his father had ever spoken so directly of being a shaman, of being the shaman. What he said made Otto's brain stutter a moment. Removed? he asked dumbly. Yes, his father replied, his eyes gazing inward. A shaman's road's not a simple one. It's part religion, part magic, and part psychology, he continued seriously. He turned his head to look at his son walking beside. For some shaman... 
It's more religion. For others, more magic. I'm never sure myself where the boundary lies, he said with a wan smile. I'm not even sure I have the shaman's gift, he admitted ruefully. Otto gaped like a beach de boebo. But, he began, his father snorted, don't be so shocked, Otto. You're so sure you have no gift, but what if you're wrong? The gift is as much training as anything, and it's passed from father to son in just the way we're proceeding now. I walked this beach with your grandfather not so terribly long ago and asked many of these same questions. Otto forced his mouth closed and let the knowledge sink in. The shaman isn't in touch with the same world that, say, red-green is, his father continued. Otto shot a quick look at his father, who appeared not to notice. Your gift will link you to the world spirit and give you insight that you won't be able to trace back to a source. You'll know without knowing how you know, and sometimes you're right, he continued. With an apologetic grimace, he glanced at his son, and sometimes you're not. Well, it seems a bit haphazard, Otto blurted before thinking about it. Yes, his father agreed. So we walk the beach, and we look for materials, inspiration, and remove ourselves from the world of fishing and commerce and the company. But what are we doing out here? Otto asked once more. Listening, his father said. Listening to the world. The two lapsed into an easy silence then. Otto felt as if something important had happened, but he wasn't sure what. His father hoped for the same thing. They picked their way through another kilometer of beach before Richard leaned over to pick up a gnarled and weathered bit of wood from the sand. He turned and held it up to show his son. What do you think of this piece? he asked. Otto's glance danced dismissively at the piece of wood, and he nearly cried out when some trick of light or angle showed him an otter in the wood, very briefly, its eyes shining and paws folded over its chest as if floating, before it resolved into a gnarled bit of wood in his father's weathered hand. He looked up and saw his father was looking down at him with a small, sad smile. Now you know, he said simply. Tucking the bit of wood into his pocket, he turned and continued the walk up the beach. Otto paused, stunned, for a few ticks, before moving up to take his place beside the older man once more. He had a lot of thinking to do, and several kilometers of empty beach to do it on. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. 
go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Chapter 3, Aram's Inlet, September 30, 2304. Jimmy Pirano stood in the executive suite of Pirano Fisheries and stared out over the docks into Aram's Inlet. In his head the phrase, Why me? Why me? Why me? kept chasing itself around and around and around. Jimmy, staring out that window all day isn't going to help. We've got to do something. Anthony Spinelli slouched in the visitor's chair and eyed his boss over the rim of a steaming coffee cup. Jimmy sighed and ran a pudgy hand up his face, across his forehead, and back across his nearly bald skull. Yeah, yeah, I know, but what? he finally said. There was no heat in his reply, no anger, just a resignation born of years in the field and fighting with his family solicitors back on Dunsany. Tonio sucked in a deep breath through his teeth and shrugged. They got no idea what's what out here. They're nice and snug in their offices at corporate, and they're just dictating the terms. So? We got two choices. Tell them no, it don't work that way, or tell them okay, we'll kill a few people for you, but we ain't going to take the fall. I don't see any other options. Jimmy spun sharply at the phrase, we kill a few people. He stared at Antonio. What, he replied, you think this isn't going to get people killed? You think the fishermen aren't going to come back at us? We're not the mafia, Tony, Jimmy said quietly. We don't kill people. Antonio shrugged one shoulder in dismissal. You know that, I know that, but the rest of the people? Come on, Jimmy, you're a Pirano. I'm a Spinelli. What are they going to think when we start telling people they got to turn in more fish or we take their boats away? Taking their boats away isn't going to help anybody, Tony. You know that. Jimmy crossed back to the room and threw himself into the ratty chair behind the desk. It's just stupid. Yeah, but that's what Shyster, Shyster, and Shylock want you to do. You can read between the lines as easily as I can. What the hell you think replace the crews that failed to make quota for more than three consecutive weeks means? Musical halls? Tony spat back. Jimmy snorted and crossed that idea off his mental checklist. No, I don't suppose we can just trade the people around. Problem is we don't have enough skippers. What if we do take the bottom ten boats? We'd have to tie them up. Who are we going to get to skipper them? Who's available to crew? The irony was that out here on the frontier... That's how Jimmy viewed the place, the frontier. There were more boats than people to use them already. While it seemed incomprehensible, the company had brought the fabricators necessary to make an almost unlimited supply of the vessels needed for the various tasks associated with Pirano fisheries. From skiff to trawler to tug, every vessel in the deep green ocean was built in a Pirano yard, some of them right here in Aram's Inlet. Not just the hulls, but everything, from keel to radar, stern post to prow, anches, winches, nets, lines, even the propellers. You don't have to tell me the problem, Jimmy, Antonio said quietly. We've been fighting these bastards for almost five standards now, and all they say is your production level is not up to quota, like they have a clue. Setting the quota high and punishing us for not making it isn't going to make them any more money. That's the problem, Jimmy said bitterly. They don't really want more fish. They just want more profits, and if they can get a better return on a smaller investment, they'll do it. Antonio just shrugged and dipped his muzzle into the cup. Okay, we have to post the new quotas. That's just too easy to check up on. If we're not careful, the old man will pull me back to Dunsany permanently, Jimmy sighed. Tonio just looked silently over his coffee cup. 
Jimmy sighed again. I know, I know. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like it, Antonio repeated, and they're going to try like hell to make it anyway, which means they're going to take more chances and cut more corners, and the ocean is going to kill them for their trouble, Antonio stated flatly. They won't push it that far, Jimmy argued. These aren't stupid people. Jimmy, Antonio sighed. What happens when they lose their birds? It took a heartbeat or two for Jimmy to realize what Tony was getting at. They're no longer employed by the company, he said softly. He'd known, of course. That was the whole point. But the full implication hadn't really fallen into place. Some of these people are on the third and fourth generation, Jimmy. They were born here. You're telling them to get more fish or face exile to Dunsany. Jimmy nodded slowly and closed his eyes against Antonio's onslaught. Kicked out of their homes, sent to a foreign planet against their wills, no skills, no prospects. I know, Tony. Jimmy cut him off a little more sharply than he really intended. Tony took a deep breath and a sip of his coffee before continuing softly. What do you think they'll do when they hear this? Just go out and catch more fish? You think they're not doing the best they can? They're just going out there and saying, Oh, I'll leave this ton of fish swimming along because I don't feel like catching it today? Jimmy smiled at the notion and shook his head. Took a deep breath and let it out. No, of course not, Tony. No, they don't, Tony continued. They already go out there and drag back every fin, skin, scale, and shell they possibly can. Some of them are already paired so close to the bone that we're losing boats and crews. Reminded by that, Jimmy asked, Any news out of Calum's Cove? Tony accepted the conversational tangent without a blink and said, Alan's report came in yesterday. We were lucky. Knowles will be ready to go back to work as soon as the new boat's delivered. And the skipper, Rachel Jameson, how's she doing? Tony shrugged. How'd you be doing if you almost killed yourself and your crew by staying out too long and taking too many risks? Jimmy sighed again. She's always been one of the better skippers. How do you think she gets those results, Jimmy? Tony pressed. Between the sonic imagers and the satellite deep scans, this isn't a guesswork business that much anymore. I know, Tony, I know, Jimmy said resignedly. She does it by taking chances, cutting corners and staying out longer than other skippers, even when she shouldn't. The implications were not lost on Jimmy. And when we post these quotas, there's going to be a lot more people taking a lot more risks, he said softly. Damn right, Tony agreed vehemently. Still think we're not killing people here? Jimmy knew only too well. Faced with the choice of, perhaps, getting into trouble they couldn't get out of, or the certainty of exile to the sector capital, a place that most of them had never seen or had much wish to, they'd take the chance. And they'd be angry and resentful in the process, which would only contribute to the probability that something would go wrong. Even with all the technology, information, and communications that they had, it still came down to men and women in frail boats, doing hard, dirty work over long hours in an environment that would kill them if they weren't careful and lucky. Almost involuntarily, his eyes glanced at the sign on the wall with the inscription, Number of Fishermen Lost This Year, 215. Safety inspections are mandatory. So, what do we do, Tony? Jimmy asked. We get more fish. We get more efficient, or we get new jobs, Tony answered glumly. Jimmy chuckled without much humor. Yeah, I got that part, but what do we do here? Well, Tony said, the instructions are more fish, right? Yeah, Jimmy agreed. They're saying the stockholders aren't happy. 
Tony grimaced and shook his head. They're never happy, but are they unhappy because of the metric kilotons leaving the planet or because the bottom line isn't yielding the 80% they always want? Jimmy snickered, true. And don't matter what kind of return we give them, they always want more. Well, we're still outperforming Umber with an 18% return on investment here, Jim, Tony pointed out. I know, and I can't imagine what they've told Angela to do, Jimmy replied, thinking of his older sister, his counterpart in the Umber system. I can, Tony said lugubriously. The old man won't lean on his little girl the same way he leans on you. So you think this is coming from him and not just the lawyers, Jimmy asked. Tony shrugged and sipped his coffee once more before answering. I don't know where it's coming from, Jimmy, he replied at last, but you know how the old man is. And you know that Shyster, Shyster, and Shylock know that they lean on his little girl at their peril. Would you risk losing such a lucrative contract by alienating the old man? Jimmy snorted. Not on your life. He paused for a couple of heartbeats. It's just that this doesn't really sound like the old man. He's made these kinds of demands before, Jimmy, Tony reminded his boss. It was Jimmy's turn to grimace. Yeah, but he's also been out there. Hell, he was fishing here on St. Cloud before I was born. He knows how this works. Tony looked thoughtful at that. You know, he said tentatively, we got a dozen boats ready to go down in the yards. If we only had crew. Can we scrounge up skippers, promote a few mates up to take them out? Jimmy sat very still while his mind raced through the possibilities. Get HR to look at the records. We haven't done a major fleet expansion in three standards. Maybe it's time. Jimmy knew that the reason for this was because of a dearth of qualified hands. Well, a dozen boats ain't exactly a major fleet expansion, boss, Tony pointed out. With nearly 4,000 craft working almost non-stop except for the harshest part of the winter, a dozen boats would disappear in the rounding error. Yeah, Jimmy conceded, but it's something, he went on. And a wolfish grin spread across his jolly face. What do you think, Tony? Fancy a season at sea? Tony almost spit his coffee out on the desk in surprise. Us, he exclaimed. You're not seriously considering taking a boat. Jimmy shrugged. Well, you said yourself we have to do something. And if we're asking these people to put their lives on the line for us, the least we can do is pitch in. Tony was incredulous. Boss, one boat ain't going to make that much difference in quota. I'm not talking about quota, Tony, Jimmy said softly, with a gentle smile on his face. I'm talking about perception. People going to perceive you lost your mind, Jimmy, Tony exclaimed. Think, Tony, think, Jimmy persisted. What's going to happen when we post these quota numbers? People going to be pissed, frustrated, and very, very uncooperative. No, really, Tony replied, irony dripping from his voice in solid ingots. Jimmy ignored the outburst and continued. The real danger here is letting that get out of control and turning into an us-against-them battle. If that happens, we got a much bigger problem than lawyers. Tony snorted. Are there any bigger problems? He asked bitterly. You ever see these guys and gals fillet an abo abo? Jimmy pressed. Well, yeah, they're damn fast with those knives. Jimmy just stared at Tony for a long moment. Oh, you don't think, Tony began. Jimmy shrugged. Angry, desperate people do angry, desperate things, my friend, he said softly. Tony sighed and nodded ruefully. How's it going to help to have us out flailing about on the grounds? Well, it's much harder for them to get mad at us if we're out there working beside them, don't you think? He asked in reply. But, boss, we ain't young guys anymore. You haven't been out in 20 stanniers, Tony continued to object. My license is still valid, Jimmy pointed out. And with another decent crewman, we could take one of those side trawlers out to the pumpkin or even Old Man's Bank. You want me to be in your crew, Tony asked finally. The implication of what his boss was proposing was beginning to sink in. 
Why not? You've never been out there, have you? Tony shook his head. You know I haven't. My old man was an accountant. I learned to balance the books. Time you saw how the other half lived, then. Jimmy's grin got even more wolfish. We need a seasoned hand to round out the crew and show you the ropes, but we can do this. Tony looked at his boss with growing horror. You can't be serious, Jimmy. Jimmy Pirano's grin turned to steel. I'm deadly serious, Tony. I'm not going to ask the men and women to risk their lives all on their own to chase down fish to make a bunch of corporate bean counters back on Dunsany happy. If they have to, we have to, he said. Damn it, Jimmy, I'm an accountant, not a fisherman, Tony objected. Jimmy snorted. Maybe you're not, but I sure as hell am, and it's time you learned what's behind those columns and numbers you've been balancing for the last twenty staniers. A little work won't kill you. Tony sighed. I'm too old for this crap, he said, without much conviction. Look, Jimmy said, we only got a couple of months or so before the weather turns. Everybody's going to be ashore for the winter. A couple of months, let us get you trained up, see us build a crew, send a message all along the south coast. We'll have the winter to work with everybody and make sure they know that whatever we may have to say in formal communiques, nobody is going to lose a job. I'm not sending these people into exile. The old man can come out here and relieve me if he thinks I'm going to do that. But Jimmy, fishing? Us? Out there? Jimmy looked at his friend for a long moment before replying. One thing the old man drilled into me. Never ask your people to do something you can't do yourself. If we're going to ask them to shoot at these quotas, then by the gods and little fishes, we're going to ask them from the deck of a boat heading out to the banks. But Jimmy, Tony tried once more. Tony? Jimmy asked softly with a hard edge to the question. Weren't you the one that insisted we had to do something? Well, yes, boss, but this? Well, unless you've got a better idea, I suggest you get your butt down to HR and find us a good, experienced crewman. I'm calling the yard and snagging that new side trawler for myself. We're going out. Do you have any questions? Tony stared hard into his cup for a tick before looking up at his boss with a rueful grin. Only one. When are we leaving? Jimmy grinned back with real amusement this time. As soon as we can get the boat ready and the crew aboard. How long you think that'll take? Tony chuckled. When the yard gang gets done rolling on the floor laughing when you tell them, I'm guessing not long. Being the son of the CEO carries some weight even with these goons. He said it with a grin of his own. Jimmy considered that for a moment. Good point, he said. He stood up and headed for the door. Maybe I should deliver this bit of news in person. He stopped at the door and looked back to where his longtime accountant, second-in-command, friend, was still sitting stunned in his chair. Don't you have something to do other than cluttering up my office? He asked with a laugh as he strode off down the hall, letting the flimsy door of the executive suite flap shut behind him. Anthony Spinelli sat there for a moment longer before he rose, chuckling to himself and following his boss down the hall at a more sedate pace. The coffee cup went with him, of course, and he one-handed his pita from his pocket and started reviewing personnel records as he walked slowly down to HR to see what Carruthers could do to help. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. The music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdigon. Available at the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. 
This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 2.5 license. For our website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org golden. <laughs>